know if that's some kind of weird thing that aging rock stars do, but I, I really don't. I mean, or, or, or uh, celebrities. I'm not a celebrity, but I never looked at it like that. I just started it because it wasn't, I wasn't that active at that point, and I just remembered things. So I, started, I really I was overly ambitious. I was going to write two volumes. One was about me growing up in the 1950s and then going to the music. It became very lengthy. I had a manuscript done. I started working on it seven years, but it was done after two or three. And I just had it on the shelf. And I finally said to my wife, I said, maybe we should find an agent and see if somebody's interested in publishing it. Because otherwise, I'll just give it to the kids and the grandkids. And at that same moment, Scott Bomar from BMG had heard I was writing a memoir, calls me, says, can I read some? I said, yeah, I'll send you a couple chapters. He got right back and he said, let's talk. And he wanted to publish it. And the best thing he said to me was, we don't need a co-writer. That made my whole day. I went, you know, I'm not Ernest Hemingway, but, you know, I mean, that really made me feel good. So uh, off we went. And then I sat down and proceeded to rewrite it and trim it, condense it, put in pertinent facts. Connie, my wife, was a great editor. She'd come back to me and say, uh, this thing about this session you did with the Flying Reader Brothers, why don't you, what, what song did you cut? Why don't you write about that? I said, you're right. I got to write about the song and who played on it and this and that. Scott Bomar was a great editor. He, he has the idea to open this, the whole story with my, the house fire, you know, and uh, where we, we were hit with that fire. So there you go. That's what, that was the motivation. Why was the house fire the right place to open it? I think he looked at it as looking at it as a flashback. He opens up with this where it's, it's 2017. I'd already been on the road promoting my album I did with Tom Petty, Biden, my time. In Nashville in October, Tom dies. Not in Nashville, but he died. I, I find out about it. Broke my heart. That was it. I come back. The tour's over. And, uh, and uh, I'm out on, on my birthday. Uh, uh, this, uh, December 4th, 2017. And then my son-in-law who's a fireman gets a call. There's a fire starting up and down in another town and uh, all of us. Anyway, that's, that's the point. The fire was a, a, a huge firestorm. It was 75 mile an hour winds. Almost took out the city of Ventura. Real close. So Scott opens the story with that and we go back into a flashback, which I liked because it sort of caught the reader, reader's eye attention. It sounded like when you first set out and started working on this, as you said, it, it's, it maybe sat on a shelf for a little while, but it sounded like that would have been fine with you if you had just written it. And if you know your immediate family was the only one who actually got a chance to read it. As I say, I wasn't uh, jumping into a new career as, as uh, a young Hemingway or, or uh, William Faulkner by any means, nor could I even claim to do something as well as they did. But hey, uh, it's that book has uh, amazed me. It's I never anticipated how well it's done. It was in a second printing after two months. It was in its second printing. I never anticipate that. So it was great. Really wonderful. And and so many people have contacted me that relate to that period of time in their life who are close to my age or my age of how really good it was uh, post-World War II in America. Most uh, things were really good. We had a really strong situation. Ike was in office 19 I was in the third grade I mean it's great it was a good time to grow up in, in the states uh not the same as it's going on right now there you have it did you find it to be a useful exercise on a personal level obviously you stuck to it for a while no it was great and then I uh, after it was what I thought was done I would remember something 
I completely forgot to mention uh, doing this photo session with Bill Monroe. And then I put it in there under the caption of the photo. And that was such a funny day because Bill was where we were singing together and I missed the lyric and he smacks me on the leg. It was so funny. It's like, like my hero. It was like approval from my hero. But yeah, uh, it was very cathartic. I mean, I, uh, I'd already come to grips with my dad's death and after having years of anger about that. And he was a really a good guy. It wasn't like we haven't had an abusive father who killed him. We had a great dad who taught us all well. And, uh, and uh, I was very upset when he died for a long time and angry as suicide can do to a family. And then I forgave him. And I finally, one day I realized he was having horrible issues in his life personally. And uh, that was the way he chose. I forgave him. Life started to open up for me. And, but it, it wasn't hard for me to go there and describe him dying going to a hotel and taking sleeping pills. I, I had come to grips with it. So all of that and, and other things that happened. And uh, looking back on it all, when you start looking back at things and they're in uh, a certain cohesive order in your life, I went, God almighty. I said, Connie, my wife, I said, how did I get through that? I had no money at, at 18 years old. I'm, I'm with the squirrel barkers in San Diego and I'm living in Tijuana. How did I survive that? I survived it. We survived when my dad died. My mother sits us down and says, we have no money. We're going to move, we're going to, move to L.A. We survived it because we said, okay, we had no other options to do. Yep, the subtext of this book is don't, get, don't give up. Don't throw the ball in unless you've really exhausted everything. And you'll know at that point whether you should continue on that path. But otherwise, you'll, you'll find as the, uh, I'm sorry for the cliche, the road to success is paved with failure. Well, it is. And I love the story of Michael Jordan not making his high school basketball team. Fabulous. And look what he did. It's one of those things when you look back on your life and everything that felt like an eternity or the end of the world, in hindsight, you broke through at a really young age. And you were a veteran of the industry at a really young age. And, you know, you're early to, to mid-20s. I assume that reflecting on it, Perhaps those failures start to feel less substantial the more removed you are from them. Well, yeah. But then again, when you read it, and I'm looking back at the birds and the time in the birds, I'm like, God, that was great. I mean, I, I was a lucky kid that I, I got into that band. I, I bluffed my way into that band. I didn't play, couldn't play the bass. I think it took me one the first album to finally figure it out. But but I, I, I look back on the birds. I'm very close with Roger McGuinn still. We're very, very close friends. And David and I talked to Crosby. But what a great time and a great time in music. You know, I mean, the Beatles come along in 1964. They basically healed our whole country after the Kennedy assassination. And they changed the music. They changed the culture, the fashion. And, and of course, we started out like every other band, emulating the Beatles until we found our own signature style as we did. That was great time. So revisiting that in the book in context uh, as things went along, some of them were, weren't as pleasant as the birds. There were some tough things like uh, that I, I, I would have done over. Of course, we're all geniuses in hindsight. Does that also extend to the end of the birds as well? I mean, is there is there a regret or had it just run its course? Of course, like I say, I regret uh, my exit from the birds was not a gentlemanly thing. I was very upset and uh, it was just not happening. You see, I got a I loved Graham Parsons dearly, and I forgave him probably 70 times seven, to quote a biblical. But um, I really did. And he had, he had some talent, 
but he wasted it and it got to the point where we couldn't work together. But sometimes I look back and go, um, I regret not uh, taking more command of that situation with the burritos, but it didn't really matter. That's all history. It wasn't the only thing I did. I spent an hour, a year and a half in the Flying Burrito Brothers, maybe two, and poor Graham didn't didn't last. You know, just, he was doomed from the from the beginning. So that's the downside of it, Brian. I mean, I, I lost a lot of good guys and two guys in the birds uh, who actually made it into their forties, which I don't know. That's a weird thing to say, but and Graham dies at twenty seven and. Jimi Hendrix died at 27. It was a strange age for people. I think you described the process of writing the book as, in a sense, being catharsis, especially when it comes to dealing with the most difficult topics in your life, like your father's suicide. You know, as somebody who did blossom into a songwriter, do you feel that your music has been able to be a similar outlet for you? Oh, yeah. It, 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 yeah. It, I mean, right now, if I was looking at things in right this moment, I'm not writing anything. I probably will. Usually I would start writing when there was something, a project to come along and I'd really get into writing songs and this and that, but it was my outlet. Yeah. Music saved my life, you know, really. I mean, I was, like I said earlier, I was starving playing bluegrass, which I loved playing mandolin in Scottsville school barkers, 18 years old. And when we got paid the first time I went, wow, you get paid too. So here I'm having this wonderful time and everybody, here you go, 10 bucks. I said, couldn't believe this. We get paid to do this. We get paid to have fun. And so, yeah, it was always, thank God that music was there. Cause I mean, I was at an age where I was drafted two years in a row to, you know, and I would have been in Vietnam if not dead, but I was supporting my mom. Uh, my brother was already in the air force. So uh, I wasn't supposed to do that. And I, my heart goes out to anybody that did have to, but the music saved me. You mentioned that obviously the huge sea change that was the, the Beatles when it came to popular culture and the influence that that had in, in the birds early on. And, and you pointed this out in the past as well, that you had had a, an interest in country music prior to the birds and the birds had done some country covers and some folk covers. But really when we talk about a, shift in culture in terms of the popularity of country rock people always to a one point to sweetheart of the rodeo do you feel that popular culture in the united states just wasn't ready for country rock up till that point i don't know i never thought of it that way i mean we had a huge country music uh scene in in california because and basically because of the mass migration in the 30s uh from the dust bowl and from the depression uh, Merle Haggard, Bakersfield, you know, the yeah. whole story and, and Buck Owens coming out from Texas and all that. And to, in some ways, uh, um, Dwight Yoakam points this out um, on his you know, radio show. He's quite, quite studied in this, that Buck was really doing country rock too. I mean, country rock was basically just a little more emphasis on backbeat and Buck wrote songs a little bit different than Merle Haggard. Buck's songs were for dancing. You're always those up tempo shuffles, you know, and very similar to what country rock was, where we took a song and, and we put just a little bit more backbeat to it, a little more edge to it. And, you know, I mean, I had to I had to suffer through uh, the birds being called folk rock. Before country rock, we went through the birds. New single is like, oh, God, this is the best one. Raga rock, because we had a backwards guitar on it. The Bird's new single is jazz rock, eight miles high. That I said, well, okay, everybody's it's a it's a lazy journalist term, blah blah rock. So I've learned to uh, accept the term country rock. Sweetheart of the Rodeo, I think, opened the floodgates. 
it did. And it was a good thing because uh, it really, I mean, we went from there to the Brito brothers, of course, Poco, uh, and then uh, onward to the Eagles who really carried it off quite well. I think they studied everybody else. They figured out what not to do. But yeah, it was a good time. And basically it was just uh, taking um, two, three-part harmony, more backbeat, uh, if you wanted to analyze the term country rock. But now we're all under the umbrella of Americana, so it's okay. It's really what it is. Blues, everything roots. And we try to stay in a more, certainly the Brito Brothers tried to, and developed out of a real, love of roots music of real country music and i must say the brito brothers material in the first album was good graham and i were cooking on the writing end of it with sin city and all those songs and and you know you you hit the mark when people cover your songs it's the greatest compliment you could get as a writer yeah well you know you hit the mark when people cover your songs you also know the you hit the mark when bill monroe is telling you that you're doing a good job that kind of validation goes a really long way especially when you're starting out Buck Owens told me once, does Chris, you sing pretty good. Well, and that's Buck's way. And I went, wow, you know, to get approval from one of your heroes, you know. So, yeah, it, it was all great. I always, I always had a good time with it. I, I wasn't trying to be Van Morrison or Bruce Springsteen. I really wasn't good enough back in the early or late 60s. I, I sort of learned how to sing better and play better. But I wasn't after that. I was a band player. I played, I loved to play in uh, quintet, quartet, trio, whatever. I love being a musician in a band. That's what I, Petty said. Uh, Tom Petty's last interview, he says to this in the Los Angeles Times, he says, I don't think Chris liked show business. I just don't think he liked it at all. And he, I said, boy, was he on spot on. I, I didn't care about show business. I didn't care if I was in a limousine. He said, Chris was a real musician. Uh, he he was that's what he did really well and that was another great compliment when you come out and and start writing songs and one of your first or at least first prominent songs is so you want to be a rock and roll star that was probably a reflection of not just your feelings about the industry but your own place in it yeah we were having fun with it and uh we just heard that on the radio before i started talking to you on petty's xm uh, channel and uh, the Heartbreakers doing Rock and Roll Star live. It was great, you know, and they did it really good. But it's it's a funny lyric. It's like uh, here we are. Uh, Roger was about twenty four. I was about twenty two years old, and 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 we're writing about like we were old timers had been around the block fifty times. And but it was just a funny look at things. Do you feel at this point in your life that you're still learning when it comes to music? Oh God, yeah. Well, I'll never, I'll never get it. You know, I'm, I've been wrestling with a mandolin for almost 60 years. So no, I enjoy that. That's part of it. And, and you get to where you, you just, uh, and, you know, you, you start out as a musician emulating, then you start innovating. You start out playing lots of notes to say, look how good I am. And then you get a little older and wiser in season and you play less notes and you play the melody. And that's where you want to get to as a musician. So, yes, I am learning and uh, I had some really good still to this day. I had a gentleman passed away last year who was the guitarist in um, uh, uh, Johnny Carson's Tonight Show band. Yeah, Bob Bain was his name, was the guitar player. But he used to give me lessons, jazz chords. I would never use that on stage, but it was just fun to learn jazz chords. It was completely new to me. So, But he was an amazing musician. Anyway, I know that you've been doing some teaching as well. I did for... Uh, Yoram McCockinen's uh, uh, Fur Peace Ranch a couple of years back. I, I had a great time. And uh, most of my students were oh, approximately 45 to 
70. And first thing I had, I taught a class in beginning mandolin and songwriting. And I said to them the first day, the first time I did it, I said, none of you are going to be, I doubt if any of you are going to have a big career in music. If you write a song that someone covers, you win. Now, I may be wrong. I hope I am. But I want you all to remember something. Have fun with music. And whatever happens, great. Enjoy it. Embrace it. And uh, I had some wonderful people. And the next time I taught there, they all they all signed up and came back. So Yorma was happy because I always sold out my classes. But I had a good time. And I love Yorma. He's a, he's a good guy. A veteran. I got the sense that, correct me if I'm wrong, but that you were a reluctant front man when it came to really sort of stepping out, when it came to starting a band that had your name on it. Is that something that you came to appreciate? Well, I was very shy and I had, I, I my, one of my big regrets is I wish I'd had more confidence. But when Gene Clark uh, opted to leave the birds, I was up in the front singing. Was I, like I said earlier, was I ready to, to be a front man or lead a band? No, I wasn't ready yet. And I, I just enjoyed doing it. And I had some great teachers as far as vocal singing. David Crosby and Roger McGuinn, Stephen Stills. So I learned how to sing. I could sing. I could sing in tune. But I went to learn how to really uh, put that vocal out with some meaning and feeling. I learned how to do that. And then by the time the Desert Rose Band came along in 1984, uh, I did take over the burritos after I had to get let Graham go. And we had turned the burritos into a darn good live band the last album we did last of the red hot burritos if you've never heard that you need to listen to that it's smoking okay and so but then desert rose band was where i i ran it and uh, sang the lead ran the show ran the band and the first time we had a top 10 country single i actually did not believe it i said this isn't supposed to happen i'm the guy that plays in the back line and uh and i after that it just was gone and gone we had a that was the longest I'd ever been in a band. I was in that band eight years and we're still friends. And when I do come to New York and play, I'll have John Jorgensen and Herb Peterson with me. And I've been working with them over 25 years since Desert Rose Band. I've known Herb 60 years, almost 60 years. Yeah. So it's an amazing thing. And uh, that's the joy of it all. And I look back and, and, uh, and on the career and all that it, I, I was really blessed and very lucky, and I had a great time. I really did. I was very, very lucky to have been able to do what I love to do. And there you go. So we go with as far as we can go with it. I talk to a lot of people in bands, and, and for the most part, I think they give me the same answer to this question, that in order to really have a successful band, there needs to be one person, not necessarily run like a dictatorship, but maybe to some degree who has the vision and who is sort of, you know, at least knows what direction to move things in. And if you want to do a good, good analogy, I mean, it's like, it's like, uh, uh, that's why the military is set up the way it is. You can't go out into a situation, a dangerous combat situation, and everybody's the leader. One guy's got to say, okay, hold on, we're going to do this. We're going to sit here. And you're going to go over there and say, blah, blah, blah. and yes, you can't be a, uh, a dictator laying down draconian rules in the band, but you do have to put and set parameters, which as I said earlier, I should have had more control in the burritos. But when, when I was working with Graham, Graham was a very strong guy, strong personality, very charming man, and very intelligent. And I loved the guy. Well, I should have roped him in a little earlier. I should have just roped him in, literally had that lasso around him and, said, and taught him some behavior things. Because it got to where what happens in a band, I'm sure you've heard this, is uh, where one or another loses respect for the others. 
or someone on the outside starts getting in their ear, well, you don't need these people. You could do this on your own. And that's what breaks up bands. So you look at the statistics, how many groups have stuck together? Stones, uh, Nitty Gritty Dirt Band, Beach Boys, eh, well, Brian's over here. Michael, yeah, but I mean, uh, two bands, the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band and the Rolling Stones. Uh, but yeah, it's tough. It's a tough one. I used to have a funny uh, metaphor. The band is uh, all four or five members are holding a paintbrush and painting the Mona Lisa smile. Right. And you're trying to get to that where that's just what comes out. Uh, and uh, if you can get there, uh, that's when it wins. I don't know. You felt that there were just too many people in Graham's ear telling him that he was going to be a star. I think the biggest problem with Graham was that he had a yearly trust fund of $55,000, which was really, as I did more and found out more, was a, a, a pittance to what he was really due. They had a lot of money in that family, a fortune. And he, they robbed him. It was like a Tennessee Williams play, the, the Parsons story. But uh, my point being is that Graham never had to struggle everybody struggles in what they want to do. You want to be a writer. You want to be a singer, an actor. You're going to struggle for a year or two, if not more. Uh, but as I said, as I said earlier, you, you keep going, you keep picking yourself up and doing. That's how you learn how to do it. You develop the character and how you develop your art. That didn't happen with Graham because he always had that every January, get that money. Uh, it was sad. I mean, he dies at 27, drug overdose. Yeah. So there was a sort of a uh, doomsday thing about him. And uh, I tried, Emmy Lou Harris tried, and we couldn't, we couldn't save him. You know, we couldn't. And Emmy told me she, she uh, had fallen in love with him, and, but it didn't have a chance to tell him. And, and uh, he died before she could tell him that. So when they were working together, you know, insofar as the birds being you, Roger and David, is it a case of, especially with Roger and David, of them both, you know, having gone on and had these careers and becomes having become stars that it's that it's just sort of too difficult to kind of get egos into a room together to produce music. I don't think so I, I, I think at this point it doesn't. We're not going to ever play together in the as the birds. We two of the fellows are gone. Uh, it's best to leave it as a good memory and and. Uh, I have to say I agree with Roger all along on that. And I do, like I say, I'm very close with Roger, and I do talk to David occasionally. Uh, but they're great guys. I have I, I don't hold any animosity towards anybody I work with, living or dead. And I went out of my way to not denigrate anybody in the book. Oh, I could have written some things about a couple of people that I wanted to strangle, but I, I didn't feel that was relevant. I think it was more to bring out what they could have been, what they could have achieved. I was not the greatest musician, singer, or songwriter, but I got I got some mileage because I, I I worked hard, and that's what it's about. It's that work ethic. Unfortunately, Graham didn't have that. Graham could have been the next Dwight Yoakam, but Dwight has this incredible work ethic and passion, and and he suffered. Dwight was a UPS delivery man before he got a record out. I mean, he worked and struggled and suffered. Graham didn't do that. That's the difference. Can you compare them? Yeah, I don't know. Graham had some a lot of talent. He was, he was a great to write with. 
and some great songs with it. That's about all I could tell you. When it comes to songwriting, you haven't been incredibly productive in the, in the past year, which I think is probably the case with a lot of us. A lot of people. Been... Yeah, yeah. yeah, true. Do you feel like there is a point or a point will come where you will be able to process all of the sort of stresses and heartbreaks of the past year through music? Oh, I guess there is. I, I don't know if I would necessarily uh, have that as a subject matter. I mean, I, I was always waiting for some somebody to, to, to write the ultimate goofball song, Lockdown Love, or something like that, you know, waiting for one of those. To the come. new dance craze that's sweeping the yeah, nation. Lockdown Love, yeah. Uh, I, I don't know. Uh, you know, in some ways, I enjoyed... Uh, not leaving the house. I had a good time. McGuinn was, I don't think Roger McGuinn left his house since March of 2020. But uh, no, I, I don't know. I, I will see what happens on that. You know, I, I haven't thought about that yet. And yeah, there'll be a time uh, where I'll go, okay, I'm done. Um, and I think I have to measure that on if, if it got to the point where people didn't want to hear me and I wasn't really doing business or something, I'd probably make that decision. But so far, we'll see if we get on the road again in September and play that out. Yeah, we'll see.